This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lindsay Hine, and today you're listening to episode 80. I haven't hosted over here on the Illuminate Podcast in a couple months now, so I'm excited to be back. And if you don't know me, I started the podcast production company, Sandy Boy Productions, which the Illuminate Podcast is a part of. And I also host All Have Another which is a running-based podcast. I interview professional and everyday runners over there, as well as the new parenting podcast, Why Is Everyone Yelling? I find myself saying that as a parent quite a bit, so that's why we named it that. Today, though, on the Illuminate podcast, I'm so excited to be back, and I'm excited to welcome Liz Bohannon to the show. Liz is the founder of Seiko Designs, which is an ethical fashion brand that works to educate and empower women. Liz has a passion for social enterprise, conscious consumerism, social justice, creative leadership, gender equity, risk-taking, and empowering women. She believes deeply that business is a powerful platform for social change and that girls are our future. We cover so much ground in this episode. We start with Seiko Designs. We talk about motherhood. We talk about living in community. It goes so many places and it was such an honor to talk with Liz. Liz is relatable. She's funny. And I feel challenged after this conversation to honestly, as corny as it sounds, go live my best life. So I hope you walk away feeling like that as well. If you do love this interview or any of the interviews on the Illuminate podcast, please consider leaving us a quick rating and review. That is super helpful in new listeners finding the show. All right. Enjoy my conversation with Liz Bohannon. Well, today on the Illuminate podcast, we have Liz Bohannon on the show. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. How's life in Portland? Oh, it's good. The sun is starting to peak out and we've had some weekend days that have been uh, a little bit more pleasant and the days are starting to get longer. So it's good. It feels like a spring awakening, not just in Portland, but for 20, 2021, ready to come out of our holes a little bit. That's for sure. Oh, I feel the same way. It's 60 and sunny here in Indianapolis. And um, I went on a walk with my friend earlier and I was just like, I don't know. It's I, I saw a meme or something on Twitter the other day that was like, you know, you think seasonal depression really isn't a thing. And then it's like the first 60 degree and sunny day and you feel like you just took some sort of like drug in a club yeah. and you're just like, ah! <laughs> totally, that's how I totally. felt. Yep. Same, same. Um, so Liz is the co-founder with her husband of Seiko Designs, which is the coolest company ever. If you haven't heard of it, you all have to go look it up. It's amazing. And, you know, when I was prepping for this interview, I thought, oh, my gosh, there's so many ways we could go with this conversation. You've told your story a zillion times, and I, like, want it to be unique and different. (laughs) And I almost felt like when I was listening to you on other shows prepping for this, I could just say a word and say, What do you think about that? And you could just talk and like spill (laughs) truth bombs everywhere. You know, uh, you could probably ask my husband or best friends if that statement is true. Maybe not about the truth bombs, but at least about can she run her mouth (laughs) uh, based off of one word. And I'm I'm pretty sure most of them would confirm that your impression on that is is pretty true. (laughs) (laughs) I I do not lack opinions or words about a wide breadth of things. That's for sure. Well, I think we do have to start, though, sharing a little bit about Seiko Designs and how that whole business model started with your one-way trip to Uganda. So can you give us a glimpse of how you founded this brand? Yeah. So over 10 years ago now, I 
was in university. I was getting my master's degree actually in journalism and was really interested in issues that were facing women and girls that live in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones. And kind of had this moment post-graduation where I was working, I was in a full-time job and realized that I like said I was really passionate about this thing. Um, but the reality is that I, my life didn't really reflect that. And I didn't really have a plan for making it reflect that. And that I knew all of this stuff, I guess, circling back to me having lots of big ideas and big opinions about things. But there's a real difference I've learned over the last 10 years. And this is something that I think our culture, just to go on a rabbit trail already, um, (laughs) is really confused about is like what it means to be passionate about something. And I think we have a lot of people, probably myself when I was 22 included, that think that having an opinion on something makes you passionate about it. Um, And I don't believe that you can truly be passionate about something until your life is really deeply affected by that thing, until your relationships are affected by that thing. The word passion, actually the root, the Latin root of the word passion is pati, which means to suffer for. Um, like I'm giving something up, I am mm. suffering for, I am making a sacrifice, I'm altering my real life, not just what I'm, you know, choosing to speak about or have an opinion on, on social media or, you know, in, in other places. Um, and I think I was confused about that. And I recognized that, that it's like, okay, if I say I'm passionate about this thing, which basically just means I can talk about it a lot. I know a lot about it, but my life is entirely unaffected by the realities that are facing billions of girls across the globe. I don't have a single friend who comes from that background or that lived experience. I'm not actively walking with or learning from anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who, who kind of has that experience. And so I quit my job. I was like three months into my first full-time job. So <laughs> give me a trophy. Um, and I bought a one-way plane ticket to Uganda. And really the vision for that trip was to just go build community make some friends, learn in person and kind of on the ground, not just from facts and figures and, you know, Gates Foundation world reports, but like really what are the issues? What are the challenges? Where are the hopeful bright spots? What's happening? What needs to happen? And so I showed up in Uganda and really long story short, did just that, like spent, I just was making friends. (laughs) Where did you stay? Like, did you know anybody there? I knew one person. So there was a a girl who had gone to my college who we were like acquaintances. We weren't even like really friends, but I, we were close enough that I went to her going away party, which was a pretty big party. So it's not really saying that much. (laughs) Um, and I, I heard there was going to be cheese there. So I was like, I'm there. (laughs) Um, so, and, and she just kind of like at her going away party was like, if anybody ever went, you know, she was going to be there. I think her initial like commitment was like two years or something. So she was like, if anybody, you know, wants to visit Uganda, like you can come stay with me and please come visit me just mm-hmm. kind of to blanket to, you know, 50 people in a room. And so here I am fast forward, like sitting at my desk and being like, mm, I'm going to, I'm going to move. I'm going to go somewhere. And I was like, you know, she lives in Uganda. And I just like sent her an email and was like, hey, I bought a plane ticket to Uganda. I'm going to be there and, you know, I'm going to be there in a few weeks. You had kind of (laughs) said. One of the things, one of my like life mottos, kind of a thing that I really live by is this phrase. I didn't make it up. I have no idea who did. Um, But assume the friendship. I love that. Just like assume people want to be your friend. So good. Take initiative. Don't be afraid of stepping on people's toes. Like they can always say no, right? Like, you know, they're big kids. Adults are adults. And like. Or you'll get the vibe. Like you'll get it that they don't want to be. Totally. And it's like, and if so, whatever. But we spend, we waste so much time in relationships, like trying to read each other and like, Mm -hmm. is it too much? Is it too soon? Do they like me? Do they want me? And I really do kind of just try to operate off of like, I'm just going to assume you want to be friends with me and I'll get the vibe or you can make it clear if you don't feel the same way. And, you know, that's totally fine. But I totally did this with this woman. Her name's Kristen. And I just was like, hey, like you said, come visit you. I'm going to be there. You tell me, like, I I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going to live. Like, I'd love to see you and hang out. And she actually was like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. I think she was like, really wanting friends at the time. Oh, <laughs> she, sure. She was like, Do you, you can stay with me until you figure things out. So she kind of gave me a little bit of this open-ended, like night one, 
come to my house and and get your feet on the ground. You'll have a place to sleep. So that that was literally what I had was like one friend who said, you have a place to land on night one, which was good because I like arrived at to the airport, I think at 11 p.m., had never really traveled at all, like did not grow up in a family that was like world travelers. Like that was not a thing. So this was a very new experience for me showing up in a foreign country completely by myself my great friend, Kristen, who was not a great friend at the time, not like she was a bad friend, not a close friend at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, the guy that she was coming out to the airport with, who ended up becoming a friend of mine as well, got, I can't really remember, but I think he got really sick or something. Long story short, they were like three hours late. Mm. So they didn't pick me up from the airport until like two or three o'clock in the morning. And so just picture me, <laughs> little me, my first ever international trip, definitely by myself, like three o'clock in the morning at the Entebbe airport, just like hanging out, you know, and taxi drivers were of course like approaching me asking if I needed a ride. And I literally didn't even know where I was going. I was like, I couldn't even say yes to you if I did, because I have no idea where this woman lives. I don't have an address. I don't have a phone number. Like, oh <laughs> so my I was gosh. just like, no, no, my friend Kristen's coming, like just believing that she was going to show up. And she did eventually. Um, so I showed up, lived with Kristen for a while. And just started making friends, building community. And through that, ended up meeting um, a group of young women in between high school and university who were part of basically what we would call like a college prep uh, program, basically like their last two years of high school. And these young women were really academically gifted. You know, they interview thousands of students every year to be a part of this program and they t- and they pick the top 25 girls to come be a part of it. And so really academically high achieving gifted students who come from backgrounds of extreme poverty. And those young women kind of became my community. Like that's where I ended up spending a lot of my time. Um, And through just those friendships and relationships and kind of getting folded into that community, learned about a pretty big challenge that this community was facing in the form of this nine month gap between high school in college. So these young women are at this kind of, think about it like a boarding school. Um, so they're coming from all over the country and they're living and studying together for two years. And then during this nine month break between high school and university, they go back to their villages and a couple of really big challenges emerge. One is that they don't have, uh, economic opportunity back where they're from. So like 80% of youth are unemployed and it's really hard for them to get jobs. And it's hard for anybody to get jobs, but it's really hard, especially because they're young women for them to get jobs. And so they end up not being able to make money to pay for college tuition. So there's the economic challenge. And then there's a real social challenge where it's like they go from spending the last two years like with other like minded, high achieving young women. And then they go back to their villages and a lot of them might be the first in their entire community to have graduated from high school, let alone to have aspirations of going on to college. And so there's a lot of pressure for them to not continue school, to get married, to start having kids, et cetera. And so that was kind of the moment in my story where like this, you know, big, huge, massive global issue of gender inequality just became really targeted and focused of like, okay, here's 25 women. And here's this gap between high school and university. And surely there's something that we could do to kind of bridge that. I won't get, I I will really cut to the chase and say, long story short, I ended up designing a pair of sandals, hiring three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca, um, to make those sandals and promise them. I was like, here's the deal, ladies. Like, if you promise to make these sandals for the next nine months, they're going to stay out at the school um, instead of go back home to their village. If you promise to make these sandals for the next nine months, I promise that you'll go to college next fall. And they were like, okay. <laughs> And I was like, okay, and then came back home to the United States, launched Seiko Designs, uh, started selling sandals out of the back of my car, <laughs> spent probably four or five years building a traditional retail company. And then in like 2016-ish, um, we ended up making a massive pivot and saying like, hey, basically like we had made some really big strides in Uganda and with our manufacturing and kind of the design product side of things. And we really started looking at our business and we had accomplished what we, we were doing what we set out to do, which was creating community and opportunity for women in East Africa through this business. But then really started asking ourselves like, okay, could, 
could we infiltrate this mission and vision into our community and into our business even more and realize that we thought we could by kind of extending that mission and vision to women here in the United States, kind of asking the question of like, hey, can we use our business model to create community and opportunity, not just for female scholars in East Africa, but just for our customers, you know? And um, so we ended up launching what we now call the Seiko Fellows. And so it's a network of primarily female, but you definitely don't have to identify as female to be a part of it. Um, social entrepreneurs across the country. So instead of selling just online or instead of selling through retail stores, we sell through, I say, quote unquote, normal, but what I should be saying is quote unquote, superhero, um, women all across the country. So stay at home moms and professionals and students and teachers and nurses, um, anybody who really is like, Hey, I'm looking for a way to build purpose into my life. I would love to have a community of women that want to, cheer me on and want to be encouraged by me and um, are also kind of aligned with my beliefs about how I want the world to work for women and girls specifically. And um, I could really use an income. <laughs> like I would love to be able to volunteer all my time. Sure. That would be great. But like, I actually want to build a business. And for some women in our community, that's like, Hey, I want to earn a couple hundred extra bucks a month to pay for ballet classes for my daughter or to put towards our, you know, family like vacation fund. And then for other women, they're like, I consider myself an entrepreneur and I want to build a really sustainable, really significant business and full-time income, build a team, coach other people, um, and then everything in between. And so that has been really our focus over the last several years is growing that community because that community has absolutely transformed our business and become kind of the core driver for our growth, which then is the core driver for the impact that we're able to create through scholarships and through uh, just job creation across the globe. So we're no longer just in Uganda. Uh, our Uganda factory and community is thriving and, and growing. We just welcomed, um, which this is wild to me, that through 2020, not only were we able to maintain 100% of our production jobs, um, but we actually grew pretty significantly. So we just welcomed 13 new full-time team members onto our team in Uganda. So our our community in Uganda is thriving, but we've also um, now have partnerships in Kenya and Ethiopia and Peru and India and Southeast Asia and really all over the world working with um, suppliers and artisan groups that really align with us and our beliefs about how beautiful products should have even more beautiful stories behind them. Um, and that's what I'm up to today. Okay. There are so many more details. Liz said, I'm going to like, <laughs> I'm going to make, you know, like make this as quick as possible. Um, I want to direct people to your episode, though, with Jamie Ivey, because you did a follow-up episode on her podcast. I'll put the episode number in the show notes, because you talk about those years where you launched the business and your husband and you were actually like living out of your car. There's so many details to that, but I have so many other questions, too. So if you want more pictures to that piece of the story, friends listen to that too because that's yes. huge. You can also, I wrote a whole book about it. Yes! It's Beginner's Pluck. And if you really want kind of a more behind the scenes, highs, lows, the good, the bad, the ugly, that's filled with a lot of it as well. Yes. And Liz, listen, I when Emma told me that I had this interview I was doing, I was like, oh, she has a book out. I thought I bought the book. Like, you know, when you put something in your cart and then you're just like expecting it oh, to come yeah. and then yes. you forgot. And then this interview crept up and I was like, oh my gosh, where's the book? I haven't read the book yet, but <laughs> I'm still going to read it even though this interview is going to be there and gone because I, it sounds so, so good. So that came out last fall, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, no fall of, oh my gosh, is I it guess 2019? it's not last fall anymore. It was fall of 2019. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know. My brain is all. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Fall of 2019. Okay. So I have so many thoughts running through my head as you're sharing this story. And my first thought is like this idea of like when you said you went to Uganda and you met these these women and they became your community there. I thought, okay, that feels so meant to be. But like, it's not just meant to be because you actively decided to buy a one-way plane ticket because you were seeking this like fulfillment of what you thought you might be passionate about. So can you talk about that intersection a little bit? Yeah, the intersection between like fate and just 
doing stuff. <laughs> Is that what you mean? You talk about like thinking you're passionate about something, but like yeah. un- until it actually like, infiltrates into your life. And I think that a lot of times we have these moments where we think, oh, that was meant to be or like, oh, you know, it just happened. But it's like you really most of the time have to actually take steps and then you find out what was meant to be. But if you don't take those steps, it might not actually happen. Yeah. My general manager in Uganda, my colleague Agnes, who um, I've been working with now, I mean, she's, gosh, she's been at Seiko since a very long time. She, what did she say the other day? We were on a call and she said something about how like opportunity exists but it's on the dance, like the opportunity lives out on the dance floor. Mm. And like, you're not going to find opportunity unless you go to the dance floor. <laughs> and she said it more eloquently than that. So good. But I, I love that, that idea that it's like, you can't negate the, you can't negate that there are things that exist in the world, whether that frankly comes through privilege or whether it is just like luck or like right time, right place. Sure. Those things I think are, you know, it's like, I think they exist. None of that matters if you're not actively out there, open, ready, willing, looking, saying yes, doing. Um, This like notion that stuff is just meant to be and it just like happens like no, literally nothing happens if you're at home like watching Netflix. (laughs) I love Netflix and I think (laughs) staying at home and watching Netflix is great every once in a while, right? But it's like this notion that you can sit back and like wait for things to come to you or to happen, I think is silly. The The book that I wrote is called Beginner's Pluck. And the word pluck, the noun pluck means spirited and determined courage. And it really one of the premises of the book is pushing back on the concept of luck. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's especially important for women. We banned the word luck in our sales community because what I found was happening is I would see a woman in our community who was really thriving and who was having a lot of success and who was working her business and who was hitting sales targets and goals and who was building a team and like becoming this amazing leader in our community. And so I would invite her on to like a monthly call of kind of like share with us, you know, like what you've been doing. And so often they would start out saying something like, well, I mean, I do have to just say like, I think a lot of this was good luck. Mm. And I'm just like, BS. No, it's not. Like, I see what you're doing behind the scenes. Like, I see you working. I see you scheduling. I see you following up. I see you taking risks. I see you getting rejected kind of a lot and like doing the mental and emotional like self-work to like stay grounded. I see how emotionally intelligent you are. I see how relational you are and how you invite people into what you're doing. Blah, 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 blah. All of these things that contribute to them being successful. And I think as women, there's such a pressure to be humble. And listen, on a meta level, I believe deeply in humility. I think it's a great value. But I think a lot of times as women, it's not actually like what we're doing is we're being self-deprecating for out of fear of like, I don't want people to think that I'm too confident or too much, or I don't, you know, I, I too ambitious. Like that's like a very dirty word for, you know, or thing for a woman to be, even though for a man, it's like a high compliment. Um, so not only is it not real, but it's also not helpful and it's not generous. Like it is not generous to stand in front of a group of people who are like, Hey, I want to do what you're doing. And for you to say, I, I mean, it's just kind of luck. Like that helps nobody, right? Like what's really generous is doing the hard work to say like, okay, here's the four or five things that I've figured out that I would love to share with you that have worked for me, like creating community, creating a sense of collaboration, creating a spirit of like generosity. So I think this like false humility of like, "Ah, it's not me, it's not me, I just got lucky, I'm so blessed, whatever, um, is actually doing the opposite. It's like hoarding your knowledge, your experience, your failures, your mistakes, your successes, um, and it's not multiplying them. And so I think the most generous thing that we can do a lot of times is owning when we did stuff right, sharing when we did stuff wrong. <laughs> but but all of that, the failures and the successes start with, I did a thing. Never, very rarely, is it, it just happened or the opportunity came to me. Like, no, 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 no. Opportunities just don't come to you. You have to make yourself available. You have to know what your vision is for life. You have to, to some degree, communicate that to other people so they know 
who you are and what you're, you know, it's just like, there's so many things that go into that. Um, and that I think we do a disservice, not just to ourselves, but to our communities, um, when we kind of buy into that way of thinking. Wow. That is powerful. Okay. So you, but you talk about this a little bit too. I've heard you talk about like how you felt like you were getting, and and I'm probably going to say this wrong. So you just, you know, take it, take what I say and run with it. But you felt like you were getting to a place where like people would be like, think you had it all figured out. And you were like, wait, wait, wait. And you wanted to kind of like paint this picture. You want to be humble, but you also do want to own it. Like you had to work your ass off to get to where you are with Seiko. So like, what is the balance there? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the balance I think is like, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said the definition of humility isn't I think he used this analogy. I could be wrong. Someone can fact check me of like being on the beach and building a sandcastle and this idea of like building a sandcastle and being like, man, this is a really beautiful sandcastle internally. But then being like humility is me looking at it and being like, um, I mean, it's okay. It's not the best sandcastle, you know, like devaluing this thing that you created and saying like, actually like what true humility is is being able to really objectively look at something, whether it's yours or somebody else and see the value in it, right? Of being able to say like, actually that sandcastle I built is really stunning. I'm really proud of it. Also look at this one over here to be able to have as much like joy and admiration and acknowledgement of something beautiful that somebody else built. Like that's actually, that's actually the true definition of humility is it takes the ego out of it. It's not about disparaging what you created. It's about honestly kind of questioning the mindset and the mentality that went into it. And I have a whole chapter in my book that's called own your average. It has to be the only like self help ish book mm-hmm. ever that's been written. That's like, actually you're not that special. <laughs> like, <laughs> Actually you're probably pretty average. And there is something, and that's not to like discredit that one or two areas that maybe you are gifted, but instead to say like, what all the science and psychology shows us is that when we actually own our average, it what it ends up doing is producing this growth mentality, which acknowledges like I have room to grow and failure and growth isn't embarrassing and it's not shameful. It's actually part of the process and I'm going to celebrate that and I'm actually going to take more risks. I'm going to try new things um, and I'm going to share all of it because I don't have anything to be ashamed of. And, and that really unlocks us when we take shame out of it my hope is that it takes shame out of both sides of it, that we can more objectively say, look at this thing that I did. Isn't it amazing? Like without being fearful that people are going to be like, oh, she's a little full of herself. She's a little conceited, but also like, woo, really missed the mark on that one. Like mess that up because guess what? Neither of those things, the beautiful thing that I created and produced or the like major pluck up that I have, neither of them, uh, are indicative of like my innate human worth. And so there's a freedom to be able to like call it what it is, good or bad, that like frees us up. And then I can do the same for others, right? Like where I can unapologetically look at something that somebody else did and say like, that is amazing. And I don't have to be jealous about it. And I don't have to be competitive because, you know, because it's not like, it's not a zero sum game. And um, there's enough, like there's a, there's enough goodness for all of us to go out and to create and to receive. And so it's really just like unlocking us to be honest about everything, about where we're equipped, where we excel, what our sweet spot is, but then also the areas that we aren't. And then to be able to do that for other people as well. My husband always says like, most people just need to realize their kids are probably just, they're just average. And I'm like, I always take that as a negative thing, but I'm like, I guess the way you explain that, it's like, you know, when, most of us aren't LeBron James. Most of us aren't going to be like in some way, shape or form excelling in that kind of direction. So there is a different way to look at it. Because whenever I hear my husband say that, I'm like, that sounds so negative. Yeah, we definitely as a culture associate average with being negative. Um, I think the key differentiator is do you stop it? Like because you aren't inherent. My point is not hey, you're probably average, so you should just shoot mm-hmm. for an average life. Mm-hmm. Don't have big dreams. Don't try to do anything different. Like, don't try to build something or create something or be a part of something special because you're average. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you are inherently gifts, skills, talents, IQ, whatever it is, probably pretty average. Um, 
I deeply believe that by owning that and by having peace with that and by producing this growth mentality that you're actually probably more likely to go out and to build and do something really special Um, because you're not as held back by the pressure and by the ego and by the need to prove to everybody else that you're really special, which means being good at stuff pretty much like right off the bat, which just generally we're not like you generally have to be okay with sucking at something for a while in order to get good at it. Um, but if your narrative is like, Ooh, you're, you're inherently so talented and you're inherently so smart and you're inherently above average, like the pressure to go out and to immediately excel is really great. And so like with my kids, for instance, this translates so much into my parenting is that I don't tell my children things like you're really smart. Mm. Um, one, because I don't know, like maybe they're not, (laughs) they're like two and four. And like, I've never had them IQ tested and like (laughs) on the bell curve, I don't know where they sit compared to other two-year-olds and four-year-olds. One, it doesn't matter, frankly. Two, I don't know if they are, so I'm not going to tell them that. And three, I actually don't want them to go into the world having this, carrying this narrative of like, Ooh, I'm really smart because Uh here's what happens. What happens is if they believe that about themselves, what they end up doing subconsciously is they end up only saying yes to things where they think that that this message that they've been given, that they're really smart, will be confirmed, right? So I'm going to choose the easier assignment. I'm going to like not raise my hand and answer that question if I'm not 100% sure about it because I don't want to look dumb. Because looking dumb is really scary, especially if I have this really great image and reputation for being really smart. So what I love to do with my kids is instead of saying like, you're really smart, What I love to do is I love to highlight and notice things like curiosity, things like grit, right? So curiosity being like, hey, I just love how interested you are in this thing. And I love how you keep coming back to it and you keep exploring deeper and deeper and deeper because curiosity is something that you can actually have control over in yourself. Your IQ, you can't actually. I love praising them for when I notice that they're working on trying to solve a problem and they get frustrated and they stay with it, like that is a huge celebration in our house, right? Of just like, I noticed how frustrated you got and I could see that you wanted to give up and I love how you stuck with it. And then now we're going in a whole different direction. And then when they do the thing, I really try to make it a practice. Not that I don't tell my kids that I'm proud of them. I do, but I really try to make it a practice first to ask them in a moment of accomplishment, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. And because so often as parents, we like rush in to tell our kids how they should feel about themselves. And what I think that that does is it it conditions them to look externally for their validation, to say like, I'm looking to you, mom, to tell me how should I feel about myself, which then eventually translates to I'm looking to my peers or I'm looking to my boss or I'm looking to my God forbid, like Instagram community, whatever it is (laughs) to tell me I'm doing okay, right? And it's like, we take this precious moment in time where our kids have accomplished something and we just like rush in and we fill in the gap with like, let me tell you how I feel about that. And what I love doing is just creating this space through question asking to protect that space for my kids and say like, wow, how do you feel about that? Right. And then they get to kind of self-reflect and go like, man, I feel usually 99% of the time it's like, I feel so good. I feel proud. I feel strong. I feel brave, whatever it is. Um, and like, so the point is acknowledging them for effort, acknowledging them for character traits that they actually have some control over that they can grow as opposed to these inherent things that we don't actually have much control over something like an IQ, right. Um, with the hope that in them that perpetuates this growth mentality. And it also de-shames failure. One of the questions that we ask, and our kids are young, like we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and not every night, but I would say maybe three nights a week at the dinner table. And now my four-year-old is the one, he does it. Like we don't do it anymore. He's the one that asked the question, asks everybody to go around the table and talk about one mistake that they made that day. Mm. And that's what we spend a lot of our dinner time conversation on is like, Ooh, here's, here's where I messed up. And then we followed up with like, what did I learn? What could I do better in the future? Just to create a family culture where it's like, if you're doing cool stuff, you're going to make mistakes along the way. And we don't have to be ashamed of that. We can be accountable to it, right? Um, And we can learn from it. But we don't need to be ashamed of it. And we don't need to hide it. We can actually celebrate those failures. 
I just want to like bottle all that up. And I totally, totally agree with that. I'm constantly asking my kids, like, how did that make you feel? What do you think about that? Because it's really easy to just naturally jump in with your feelings on the action. So that's a huge point. Speaking of being a parent, I was going to ask you earlier, what did your parents think about you just hopping on a plane to Uganda? Because you said you weren't well-traveled. Yeah, no, they were pretty freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my mom was terrified. My dad was, like, mad. I mean, he thought it was folly, you know, that it's like, hey, I'm quitting my job in the height of a recession. I had a really good job at a really reputable corporate communications firm, and I think he, he thought it was a little silly, and my mom was just nervous for my, you know, well-being. So, yeah, they were... They weren't ardent supporters of it. And now as a parent, I'm like, yeah, I can see how when you're 21 year old who's never left the United States of America before, like buys a one way pl- plane ticket <laughs> to a country that they've never been with no connections or no plan. Like I want to believe that if and when my children do that, I'll be very cool and excited and celebrate the open endedness and the curiosity and adventure ahead. But I can also, of course, you're going to be scared. You know, they love me. Um, but yes, I wouldn't say that I left with a sense of like, oh, yeah, I'm being like, mm-hmm. I'm being like sent off and very fully supported by my family in this. But I'm curious now that you're a mom, like, are there things that your parents do you think this is your like God given nature? Or do you think there's something some things your parents instilled in you or did that gave you this, you know, like desire to go do something so big and then end up founding this massive company that, you know, when you started selling those sandals, you had no idea what was going to happen. But was it something that they instilled in you or is it just your nature? I think it's I and I think there's it's always some of both. Like I think nature versus nurture is like, it's, you know, it's a fun question to ask, but you always come out saying probably a little bit of both. How could it not Um, be? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think part of it is just personality and like who, and I'm even seeing this now, you know, as being a mom of two little boys who have some definite similarities, but then just came out of the womb differently, (laughs) you know, like have Mm -hmm. different temperaments and react to stimuli in very different ways. Um, So, but I do think I would definitely credit my mom with, um, my mom is such a caregiver. I don't necessarily describe myself as a caregiver, but what it did is it really, and she really instilled in me, she's a pediatric nurse and was my entire life growing up. So one thing that I do think that she did amazingly that I loved about growing up in my mom's house is that like, I knew without a, without a shadow of a doubt, I knew every single day of my existence, which could make me cry thinking about it because Mm -hmm. the gift that that is to give to a child, like I knew I was loved, knew I was loved, knew my mom's love for me was secure. I also knew that my mom deeply loved other children that Mm -hmm. were not me. Um, and that, yes, I was the most, you know, like her kids were very important to her, but like there were other kids that were very important to her, mainly her patients. So she would like bring her patients home on the weekends. We would like take them on family vacation with us sometimes. Like, oh, so awesome. I mean, like I remember this one time there was a little girl. Her name was Maria. She was a kidney transplant patient. And um, whenever Maria came to sleep over at our house on the weekends, she always slept in my room. And I, you know, had one bed. So we shared a bed together. We were around the same age. And Maria snored like a freight train. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this little girl, she just snored. And so I could never sleep when Maria was over at our house. You know, I'm probably like, I don't know how old I am, seven, eight, maybe. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I was just livid of just like this little girl. She comes to my house and she sleeps in my bed and she snores like a freight train and I can't sleep. And I woke my mom up to tell her about the injustice. (laughs) And my mom, just like, I remember her waking up and kind of looking at me and she's like, okay, okay, we'll take care of it. And (laughs) she walks me down the hall and she, you know, I think she's going into my bedroom to like kick Maria out. Right. And she, or fix the snoring problem. And she stops right before we get to the bedroom and she stops at our linen closet and she pulls out a blanket and a pillow and she hands them to me. And she's like, you can find somewhere else in the house to sleep. (laughs) And she was like, 
good luck. Like, may the odds be ever in your favor. I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I just remember being like, what the injustice? You know, like, it's my bedroom. This is my house. Um, and those are, you know, relatively small moments. But it's just like that, I think, instilled in me. This, yes. Like, deep sense that it's like the world does not revolve around me. It's a lot bigger and more beautiful than that. Um, and it goes so far beyond the, fo- the, you know, the four walls of this house that we happen, you know, our nuclear family happens to live in. And, but that never, it, I think there's, as parents, we're just like so terrified that our children will somehow feel unloved by that. And I, or, you know, like you chose someone else, uh-huh. you know, and, in that micro moment, right? My mom chose Maria over me. She was just like, this yeah. is, this Maria gets to sleep in the bed. You can figure out something else. That never trans, I'm sure if you would have interviewed me, the eight-year-old, you know, the next morning, I would have said, my mom hates me and she loves Maria more than me. But like, I think, you know, one of the key parenting um, kind of mentalities that I have is it's just a short phrase of like, have faith in your kids. Have faith in your kids that even if they don't get it right now, that like, they'll figure it out. And like over time, the truth of that situation will probably sift through and land in their hearts. And I think what my mom was doing with me in that moment was having faith in me that it's like she might be really pissed at me in this moment for quote unquote, choosing this other child over her. But like, in the long run, I think she's going to figure it out. And that it's not either or like, I just never a day in my life questioned if my mom adored me. But also sometimes she handed me a blanket and a pillow and said, go figure it out. Like, <laughs> and don't wake me up again. <laughs> I mean, okay, first of all, is that story in your book? It's not. Okay. No, no, it's not. It's so good. And it's something that every parent in America needs to hear. <laughs> I think that we have this like culture of people that have their children on this like pedestal and like why would I do anything to interfere with like how their life could be the best it could possibly be but what really was happening there was like your mom was making your life the best that it could possibly be through these little like acts of love to people that weren't just you showing you that you are not the center of the universe. Um, I think, you know, I think that's why a lot of people like are scared to foster and things like that because they're like, how will that affect my kids? I don't want to make my kids feel like they aren't, you know, getting everything they need. I remember Christmases where like my my dad had like a random friend staying at our house and he was on house arrest, but like it was all good. There was like random neighbor girl that stayed with us for a few weeks, like here and there. And I think that Through those little pieces of action that my parents did, just like it was normal, like, of course, we're going to take, I'll just say Sarah was her name, into our house for these few weeks. Like, why wouldn't we? She needs a house to stay at. Um, It is it is given me this desire to to live like that as an adult. And I think if our parents aren't giving us that example, it's hard to kind of like think that that's normal, you know, like to live like that. Yeah. Or yeah, just like question. There's just so much pressure, like other people's opinions. Like I notice that I am my worst parenting happens when I'm parenting for other parents, mm. like other people are watching and I am it's the processing happens so fast. Right. Where it's like I'm I'm thinking about, well, what are they going to think about? How does this look? What are they going to think? And then what is that going to make them think about who I am as a parent as opposed to being able to be like, what does my kid need? from me in this moment. And if somebody else doesn't have the context or they don't have the history or they don't know what we're trying to do and it looks bad or they disagree with it, like, okay. And having peace with that. And I, I say that saying, I often feel like I get caught up in the, like, what are other people going to think? Um, and so, yeah, having the confidence to do what is right. Um, and to know, again, I think it's like having faith in our kids that like they can, you know, there's a book, I can't remember which one it is, I should be able to because I've only read like two parenting books in my whole life. So, (laughs) Um, but they refer to just like significant learning opportunities and like putting your children in situations that are just outside of their realm of competency and like helping create the gap between. And sometimes they're going to fall into the gap because it was a little bit too big. And you were like, you, you misread the situation a little bit and you gave them a little bit too much faith and they're going to fall. And, uh, 
of course, you know, there's like, you want to keep them like safe and not create permanent damage. Sure. But, um, but if we rob our kids of that and we don't have faith in them and we don't allow them to have those kind of tension moments of being able to figure it out, of believing that like, Hey, eight year old Liz is, you know, it's like my, my, uh, (laughs) my four year old is standing outside the bathroom. I was inside the bathroom with a two-year-old. I can't even remember what happened, but he's just standing outside the door screaming, you are so naughty, which first of all, I have no idea where he got that word. We don't really use the word naughty in our house. Uh-huh. He's like, you're so naughty and I don't like you. And it's just like, cool, bro. Like, I'm going to trust that like, that's fine. You're four. Like, I'm going to have faith that over the course of your lifetime, you're going to come to appreciate and have felt like deep love and security in the ways in which I've created boundaries. And I don't give you everything that you want. But man, sometimes I really do feel like we're just like ruled by these tiny tyrants. And it's like a four year old's opinion of me, like actually is going to change the decision that I make because it's they don't like me in that moment. And we're doing just like such a disservice to our children because really what that comes out of is like, I'm not rooted in my own worthiness. Like I should not be going to a four-year-old for validation. That's not okay. (laughs) Like if you are looking to your toddlers to tell you that you're likable like, and that you're okay, like that's not, that's not right. Like kids don't owe that to us. They don't like, we shouldn't be asking them for that. But it takes a real sense of, you know, confidence and rootedness in our own value (laughs) to be able to say, like, it's okay. I can handle that. I can handle that emotion right now. It doesn't scare me. I can hold it. I don't need to react negatively to it. I actually don't even really need to be that hurt by it. I can hold that for you because I'm not going to you for my validation and purpose and worthiness because you're a (laughs) four-year-old. Right. I, you know, I was, I was the same way. I like never read a parenting book. And I think it was around that time when I had kids that started saying things like that to me, like the, I hate you, which I'm like, I don't know where you heard that. Like you've certainly never heard me say, I hate somebody that I don't even remember who said it first or how old they were. But like Mm -hmm. when I first heard that, that's when I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm an awful parent. Like how have I created children, Mm -hmm. raised children who are like, you know, six to know to say that to me when I, I know that he doesn't hate me. He doesn't even yeah. really understand what that means. But that's when oh, I started really? reading parenting books because I was like, what am I doing wrong? And I come to realize like, okay, wait a minute. Like you, you are the parent. You control how you react to the yeah. situation. And I always prided myself too. I was like, I don't read parenting books, but then I, I, I needed to teach myself. Like I needed yeah. someone to give me basically what you just said to me like because I didn't know it I didn't hear it from I hadn't heard it from anyone else um and just this morning my my second oldest my six-year-old he really fiercely like screamed at me that he hated me and and two seconds later he's sitting on the stairs by himself crying so like he's heard about something that's why he's Mm -hmm. telling me he hates me he doesn't hate me totally yep yep I actually just I was like halfway through writing about this and then I had to start work this morning but I had a moment this morning where I was walking up the stairs and my oldest was he was whining and my tolerance for whining is admittedly so low in my credit I kept this in my head I did not say this out loud this time in my head just I just said you are so annoying and then I stopped myself and was like okay that's actually one like who are you to determine like universally one, his personhood, like he's an annoying person. (laughs) Like, no, that is not true. And you don't actually believe that. So then I kind of like evolved it a little bit. And I was like, that thing that you are doing, that whining that you are doing right now is making me feel so annoyed. Mm -hmm. And I kind of sat with that. And then I was like, still not true. What the truest statement is, is that that noise that you are making right now, that whining noise happens to be combining in this moment (laughs) with my capacity, with my objective to get you out the door this morning so that Mm -hmm. I can get to work with my own like triggers and things that from I'm sure my own childhood and things that I dislike about myself and other adults, right? And the alchemy of that um, is like my response to that is a feeling of annoyance. And you're, I'm sure there's some people that are probably listening to this that are like rolling their eyes. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of that's a lot of mental gymnastics to do. But I have really tried to get away from saying one, of course, like this is just general. Like 
and not, not just for our kids, how we, how we act in the world, like telling something that they, telling someone that they are something is a very, I, I take that responsibility, uh, very highly. I have to believe something to be very, very true before I would look at somebody and say, you are this, right? Like you are evil, you are bad, you are rude, you are annoying, you are selfish, whatever it is. Um, honestly, even a good thing, right? Like you are smart. I just think mm-hmm. a lot about those things because it's like, I don't know, are you? Like, is that a true, <laughs> is that the truest truth? Like you're speaking a truth about somebody's identity. I want to be very certain in that before I do that. But then the next level of it is um, when you say things, and this can be negative or positive, right? I have stopped saying to my children, you make me so happy. Oh, and people are probably like, that's smart though, why? but I say that all the time. Okay, okay, speak the truth. Go ahead. Okay, so this is why I don't say it. Um, I don't say that because I don't want my children to believe that when they become an adult, mm. that other people can make them feel any which way. Yeah. Right. Like that they have that power over them. So it's a really small tweak. But instead I say, when I am with you, I feel so happy. That's so right. Like I'm taking a level of responsibility and control over my own emotions. You're not making me feel annoyed. You're not making me feel happy. Like we are interacting as two humans and I'm bringing my own stuff to this. I am going to create my own narrative out of this, like, and it might change tomorrow, right? But like in this moment, how you're, how you're acting in the world, this is how I'm responding to that. But I'm taking a level of responsibility over those feelings. I'm not handing that power away to you, whether it's for better or, or for worse. And so really wanting to kind of teach and train my kids the same, that it's like, no one can make you feel anything. No one can make you do anything, right? Like that we have autonomy and that there is a level of self-responsibility that, and it's good for other people to know how they affect us, right? Like it's always a gift for me to say in the context of relationship, Hey, when you do that for better or for worse, I feel this, I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel really disrespected. I feel disregarded. I feel so happy. I feel so encouraged, whatever it is. But that nuance verse, like when you do this, it makes me do this is just like, no, that's like, you're like completely evading self-responsibility for your own part in this relationship and your own lack of control over your response. Because there is a difference between your reaction to something Mm -hmm. and your response to something. So your reaction is the thing that you can't totally control. It's like the physiological sneeze that you have when something happens to you, right? Like for me, I immediately get nauseous, assuming it's a bad thing, right? Like I get nauseous, I get sweaty, my heart rate increases. They're like, there's a physiological response that I will have to feeling hurt, surprised, angry. I can't necessarily control that. So I'm not going to spend that much time beating myself up for it. What I can control is like how quickly and how in control I am of moving from my reaction into my response, how I actually, mm-hmm. what are the words that I say? What are the actions? What is my next step? Um, and I do have complete control over that. Um, and in teaching my children that they do too, we don't have to shame our reactions to things, but we also can be empowered to have control over our response to them. Wow. I'm like trying to think of what to even say to that. It's so, so good. Um, One thing I do want to move to before we have to wrap up because we're getting close to the end already. Um, We have to talk about community a little bit because I know I'm like, I have so many questions. I know you've talked about this a lot, but I know you live in this like what you call your urban commune and I think when I hear you talk about, I know when I hear you talk about your childhood growing up and that story about your mom and Maria, like I see how community has kind of been a part of your life and I'm so intrigued by this. Okay, my first question is how many families, how did y'all decide to be in Portland? Were these friends already in Portland? I have all the questions. So Give me a little rundown here. Ah, oh, shoot. Okay, we don't really have a ton I of time. Know, so I know, I know. I'll keep it pretty brief. But um, so my, you're asking specifically about my community here in Portland. Yes. And how we kind of live life. Yes. 
Oh gosh. It's I know. Been, I There's no time for the whole thing. A, I know. A whole book about this. But yeah, so I live in a community of gosh, how many of us are there? Probably like 15 people, a handful of families, um, a couple of single people, and we live next door to each other. Okay. So we share proximity, which is a really, really important part of what we do. Like the kind of core, we actually bought a single family lot that just like one house was on. We split it into three lots and built three kind of like skinny houses on one lot. So we like literally share property. And then over the years, we've added a couple other um, houses like on the street. So proximity is really important. Sharing and generosity is really important. Like our kind of the ethos of our community is like, uh, it's just, it's a posture of sharing. Like one of the questions that we really ask ourselves is like before any of us make a big purchase or buy something, not even that big, just asking yourself like, how often do I need this? And is it really necessary that I own it? Or is this something that could be a beneficial like community asset? So sending out a simple Slack that's like, hey, does anybody have, like the other day we, you know, had a bunch of winter storms come through and we realized that like we don't have a chainsaw in our community. And so we went out and as a community bought a chainsaw because it's like you only need a chainsaw, you know, whatever. So it comes down to like the physical stuff, like property, money, possessions, but also just like sharing in life is probably the most important thing that it's like, we have a rule that like to ask is to give a gift. Mm -hmm. And um, like when I ask you for a favor, quote unquote, a favor, I'm actually giving you the gift of being able to meet my need and to serve me and for us to grow more dependent and more intimate with one another and to rely on one another more and really trying to reframe the very individual, very American narrative that like to ask is needy and it's embarrassing and you're putting somebody out and you should be able to take care of yourself Um, and really saying like, actually, no, we were created to live in community and to be dependent on one another. Um, and that that's really beautiful. And when you're the one who's brave enough to actually ask for help, like almost glorifying more asking than giving. Now they're both equally important, but we just live in a culture that happens to, um, really lift up one and denigrate the other. And so we're kind of just trying to like counteract that. Um, and so just like a posture of that with our kids, with how we raise our babies and just loving it. You know, they, it's like so cheesy, but, um, you know, I've seen this meme go around. That's like, you know, I've heard this phrase of like, it takes a village mm-hmm. to raise a kid. What do you just call an 800 number? Like, how do I get Where's the, the, village? the village? Right. Where's the village? And my answer to that would probably be like, you got to build it. Yes. It doesn't just <laughs> come to you either. And it's hard. And it takes a lot of time and so much conversation and so much intentionality and so much unorganic. Um, that's the thing. It's just like, it's not magic. It's not like you just find these people and like you agree on everything. And like, it's just like the investment into community people undersell how much work it takes, but what also gets undersold is the life and the richness. I mean, the, I would say one of the absolute best parts of our life, literally at the dinner table last night, we ran out of ketchup Hmm. and that you can't have that when you're eating. No, especially potatoes are involved. Exactly. Yes. They were, you know, those like home fries. And so, um, my husband got up and he ran next door and to go get ketchup, the most natural, normal thing in the world to us is like, you run out of something, you just run into somebody's house, run to the refrigerator, grab the ketchup. And my four-year-old completely unprompted looked at me and he goes, isn't it the neatest that we could just get up and go get ketchup? Like he's, I think starting to realize that this isn't necessarily how all other people like live yeah. their life, right? Um, and I know for some of you out there, that probably makes your skin crawl to think about somebody <laughs> like, you know, coming through your house unannounced and coming out and taking some of your ketchup. Um, but I'm going to say like the beauty in the life of that sense of um, a family that takes care of one another and this, and this, the feeling of just security and generosity and the lack of scarcity and the lack of loneliness. I mean, this sense that... Was I going to say? Oh, what was it? What was it? Um, oh yeah. Oh, just within this last year of like COVID alone, what we have reaped from the relationships that we've been building now for ten years because of the way that we share life and that we live community together um, has been so immense. And I think we've all felt 
more, not that this year hasn't been hard in, in other ways, but the extreme isolation that I think so many Americans have experienced um, has not really been our experience because of um, the way that we've chosen to just integrate our life and to live as people that are completely unrelated to one another as, as an actual family. That's a beautiful way to live. All right, Liz, I'll let you go. I know you have a hard stop. I'm so sorry. No, I keep going. This I know. So I'm going to email you because I have to connect with you more. It's just, it's so been such a fun time talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Liz, for coming on the show. You guys can learn more about Liz when you go to lizbohannon.com. Definitely check out Seiko Designs. Such a cool company. That's just Seiko, S-S-E-K-O, designs.com. You can find the Illuminate Podcast on Instagram. We are just the Illuminate Podcast over there. You can find us on Twitter, Illuminate underscore pod. You can find me personally on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626, as well as Twitter, at lindsayhine. I've had so much fun posting on the Illuminate Podcast this week, and I hope to see you all soon. Have a really great rest of your day.